Welcome back to the Timely Meditations podcast. I'm Jose Espinel, one of the co-hosts on our podcast. On this episode, we're joined by special guest Samartha Sai, who talks with us a little bit more about filial versus national duty. On our last episode, we talked about commitments to family, to brothers and parents versus commitments to our nation in situations where those two duties could come into conflict. In this episode, we continue that conversation. We talk about immigration, we talk about poverty traps, and we talk about when it's appropriate for the United States or for any country to help citizens of other countries before helping citizens of its own country. This is Timely Meditations, Episode 9. Enjoy. talking about the personal let me broaden the issue um to more of the national level the political level because i i think you can take you can expand the scope of the question and then we can begin to question our commitments to nation as well and i think a great way to do it is by talking about immigration talking about labor mobility um so um the harvard professor lant pritchett wrote a book this was pre-financial crisis he's you know, a, a scholar, an economist that thinks a lot about immigration. So the numbers are a little outdated now. But he, he made the argument that industrialized nations, developed nations, should do everything it could if they really wanted to help the people of developing nations to allow them to enter in, to come through their borders, and to work in the developed nations. So here, here are just a few numbers for your guys' consideration. Um, at the time of, of when he was writing it, I think industrialized nations were spending, uh, were, were giving about $70 billion in aid to developing nations. Okay, $70 billion. The World Bank at the time estimated that if the developed nations just increased their immigration by 3%, then it would help the people of the developing nations by $300 billion, which is obviously a multiple of the $70 billion in aid that they were getting. So then the next question becomes, okay, fine, the, develop, you know, the developing nation's people, they're getting plus $300 billion, but what's happening to our people? Well, the World Bank looked at that too, and they said, actually, the developed nations, the people who are already in countries like the USA, Britain, France, Germany, even they get a net benefit of $50 billion. So when you think about it in those terms, at, you know, at first glance, it's a little difficult to justify why we, have, uh, why we have such severe restrictions on immigration when, in fact, it helps the people, the, you know, the people in the developing nations, so, so, so much more than the aid that we're giving them. And on net balance, it helps us as well. Well, I'd say net balance is already a problematic um, figure at least particularly like in the developed countries it's like you know as we learn in Act 10 they're like yeah just because you know social welfare is increasing we have know nothing about its distribution and I feel like that's something that's been particularly exposed like the illegal um, immigration um, debate where it's like um, yeah people are you know pe- you know a lot of people who are the types of people happen to be on TV and college educated and they're like oh well they're taking jobs that Americans don't want to do I'm like well, first of all, they're taking jobs that Americans won't do at $3 an hour. So it's like the idea is, you know, if we raise the wages up, eventually get to a point where people want to do them, and that will hopefully take pressure off the economy. And also, the debate will probably be different if instead of, like, you know, tomato farming and house 
on uh, housekeeping and landscaping, if they were taking the jobs of doctors and lawyers and journalists and politicians, I feel like the debate surrounding immigration would be different because the distribution of its effects would be um, completely different. Second of all, and this is like a point that you know some people have also made surrounding the um, immigration debate, and it relates back to all the stuff we were talking about earlier about like, you know, social ties and specifically to the idea of the concept of the self and the other, which is actually a concept we're discussing a lot in my um, French social thought class now, which is fascinating. Um, but, uh, but essentially it's the idea that, you know, our immigration policy should be uh, a pol- like any other governmental policy designed to benefit, primarily benefit the people living in the country. It's not supposed to be this generalized idea of social welfare, um, for basically everyone in the world. And I feel like that's been an operating principle of um, global geopolitics, at least ever since the invention of the nation state, for a very tangible reason, where it's like it sh- can't be the responsibility of like some countries, even a collection of countries, to worry about the entire human race. How this is supposed to work is every country best supports its people you know, the best it can, and then we sort of try and do what we can collectively to sort of smooth out the edges. But it's just too much of a burden to basically get like... A, basically got countries to try and lift lift up the entire world um, through any policy. Immigration, immigration is just um, one of them. And that also goes back to the idea that it's like, well, we have to care about our own first. And the whole thing is once you're not our own, you don't really matter to us, essentially. And that's just, I think... You can look at it as a depressing or sobering fact about, like, human social existence, but either way, I feel like it is very much a fact, and I feel like there's no way to get people to care about people outside of whatever um, self-enclosed in-group that they've defined, however large that in-group actually is. It's like, it goes back to, like, this is a dispute as old as, you know, Plato and Aristotle, at least in the West, where Plato's like, oh, well, what we need to create the best city, the just society is, you know, communism of everything. All the children are communally owned. All of the property is communally owned. No one has personal attachments to anything. And then r- as soon as he can make his rejoinder in politics, Aristotle's like, that makes no sense. People only care about what is dear to them. And if you don't take that into account, like, you're not being practical. This also goes back to just the distinction between, you know, um, Aristotle's pragmatism and Plato's idealism, but I feel like so it depends what lens you're trying to look at it from. If you're trying to go with just the ideal lens, saying, "Well, what should humans desire?" I feel like that's an open debate. Why do we only care about the people in our country? We don't care about people in other countries, so we do we use these policies that seem to be suboptimal. If your goal was to take care of everybody the same way you would take care of a family member, or you can go with a practical approach of being like, "Well, that's actually the best you can do," or at least it's a positive. A development given how human social consciousness is already oriented. Yeah, another and a short point from my end is that a lot of aid that the United States and other countries give out isn't free, right? It's conditional. It's conditional on in, in allowing U.S. businesses to come in and invest. Um, it's conditional on a lot of things. Uh, and and really, the point, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, is to achieve U.S. policy objectives, right? So it's it's a foreign policy lever. It's not a means by which the United States is, is fixing any moral ills that it took part in in the past. So, yeah, I, I, I don't really, you know, I don't really see that we would change our, our border policy uh, as a way of correcting, you know, any, like, disparities, uh, income disparities or what have you around the world. That's honestly a great point. I, I, I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking about it more abstractly and how the question was posed. I remember, like, I think, like, Ron Paul had a line where he's like, American foreign aid is just taking money from poor people in America to give it to rich people in the third world. And that's 
obviously that's not exactly what happens, but the point still stands. It's like where Africa has gotten something like half a trillion dollars over like the last half century. And it's like in a lot of places, things have either stayed the same or gotten worse. It's like, how do you really explain that? And that goes back to the issue of like doing the whole net net balancing. Well, net for who really is the problem in yeah. a lot of these countries? Because like the social stratification is just ridiculous in Africa. We talk about income inequality here. It's like in Africa, it's like 10 people have everything and people can't eat. Like no one else society can eat. So I feel like that's important. I think it's interesting just to add as a quick on the foreign aid note that to Ron Paul's point, mo- most people in America think we spent, I think a gal poll a few years ago said Americans uh, believe that the U.S. government doled out about a quarter of its budget to foreign aid, which is just not true. It's it's less than 1%. So there's this grave distrust like the Ron Paul thing that you're taking money from over here and you're, you're putting it over in you know Uzbekistan, um, which is in desperate need of actually foreign aid. But um, And I, I think Americans believe that some of were, were, were screwing them over. That's not the case. It's less than 1% of the budget. And personally, I'm okay, I'm not, I don't say I'm okay with it, but I am, I am okay with giving money to other countries that are not necessarily going to rich people, but it is helping their disasters, their economic system, whatever, just so we can have a stronger ally. Money makes the world go round, as we've evidenced by the fact with Pakistan, we pulled out $300 million in aid this past year, and our relationship is beginning to deteriorate slowly. We had a, not like we had the greatest relationship before Trump anyway, but there's definitely, there's no communication now because we can't say oh pakistan we need some intelligence because we just handed you 300 million dollars in aid we pulled it all out now the chinese are moving in and now they're giving them tons of aid and now they have a stronger relationship than we do with pakistan so i think it's i'm, I'm okay with giving you a few millions of dollars to other countries to solidify that foreign policy relationship and to not necessarily buy them off but to have them there and, and this is how the, the way of the world has changed we give you money and you give us support in your region and and we're the hegemon and so i think it's an important uh, point for such a small price to pay but the the viewpoint that, and I, I, I think you guys are acknowledging this, but I think we just have to make it explicit. The viewpoint that all of this is based on is the viewpoint that the value in some way of an American is greater than the value of people of other nations. Not See, I'm, not, I'm not saying not that they're greater. Not objectively, subjectively. I'm saying that by well, giving... In the eyes of, of the policy. My thing is, my point is that, okay, let's say let's say you give um, $500 million to Uzbekistan, right? They're having some regime change problems, whatnot. I'm not saying that American lives are worth less than the Uzbek lives. I'm saying that by giving $500 million to the Uzbek people and ensuring a change of power or, or a government that can withstand China or do a variety of other things that adhere to our national interest in the region, we are benefiting Americans by making America stronger, but also achieving our national interest for their own good. Uh, now, Uzbekistan is a bad example because we don't have a lot of national interest there, but if this was a Taiwan or a, a, an area in the South China Sea where you know stopping China was, it was critical and it also ensured our economic interest in freedom navigation missions. I think that $500 million to ensure our allies' support and their security there also benefits the Americans. I don't think we spend any dollar without helping Americans. I think it's just an extension of that. There's maybe a few degrees before it gets to the Americans, but they're definitely benefiting that when we give most of the foreign aid. And I just want to go back to that point because I that is a good practical um, and political point with that. But I want to attack more, or not attack, but interrogate the principle underlying, I guess, the the pushback where it's like, well, then you're saying that an American life is worth more than so-and-so's life, essentially. And you can say that, you can say that um, in any of these cases where it seems like these um, claims are at odds. I feel like you're not making an objective evaluation of anyone's life. It's saying to the subject, to the person who is making the account, it's like, for instance, they are mo- if you're doing a one-to-one ratio, it's like everyone's mother, or at least almost everyone's mother, is more important to them than some random person on the side of the globe. But it's like, objectively, is the mom's life worth more than you know maybe the mom of some other 
um, person around the world? No. But it's like, to me, that is everything versus where the other people are, are nothing to me. So it's like, and that goes back to the whole idea of like the whole social relationships are just extensions of ourselves. So when we're trying to say like, well, what will benefit the group? We're saying that as a way of saying what benefits us because what benefits them is also what benefits me. If, those per- if, those, if I'm not engaged in a relationship or reciprocity with these people, I'm not going to care about really what happens to them or not, not nearly as much as I'm going to care about the people that are close to me. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up a th- uh, one thing here. So we've been talking about, we started off talking about people and their relationships with family versus people outside of the family. And then we kind of shifted the conversation to talking about governments as these representatives of the people, but as these like huge entities that have to choose between their relationship to preserving, you know, their own citizens or trying to help citizens of another country. So here's this question, right? Like, how do the actual citizens of the United States fit in? And do you think that the citizens have a responsibility to help people in other countries versus pay taxes that go back into welfare programs for other citizens of the United States? Wait, so who, so who are the Americans helping? Are we talking about helping people like within the country or helping people? So the, the yeah, right. So the question is, do you donate to charities that help abroad or do you donate as, a, as an individual, right? Do you make the decision to support welfare programs in the United States or any sort of charitable program within the country? I think uh, it's, it depends on the situation. The, the bottom line is when you're selling this to the American people, which we do a bad job of selling foreign aid, the only way to get them on your, on your team is to say, this helps your self-interest, unfortunately. That's how you can stand up politically. And there's sometimes a little wiggle room where, let's say, a, a Haitian earthquake happens or just a travesty happens somewhere, like a 9-11 equivalent in another country, and we give foreign aid. Because as humans, we can all say we're hurting our own, and we have to protect our own, and that's the world. And, and the, the crime is so egregious that we're going to give money to them. But most of the time, 99% of the scenarios, no one cares about an Australian wildfire in this country, and no one cares about the, the collapse of an economic system in Africa. It's just day as usual. So you have to sell it as in this is in your national interest and this is in your self-interest. It's a good bang for your buck. We can spend $500 million on a new you know, bomber to, to maybe fly over um, some African nation so China stays out, or we could give the government you know, $20 million, which, which not, I don't want to say puts them in our pocket, but builds a strong relationship with them that helps them develop from the ground up, that keeps China out, and also establishes them a partner and an ally and a kind of offshore balanced uh, initiative in the region, which means that we don't have to put troops in Africa we can have a partner and a government and a regime that we trust to carry out our objectives. It's cheap for you, and it ensures that not only are American national security interests protected, but also your own interests abroad, which directly affect your interests at home, are also safe. So you have to sell it for their own good. Right, right but that's still benefiting the American people. That's right. right. That's how you yeah. sell. Yeah. That's, that's, that's yes. how you sell. So was your question, like, should they donate to help people in the world or help? They should, but they're not going to. I don't think. So my question was like bringing it back to people within the United States. Do we have a greater responsibility to people in the. So think about it this way, right? Um, think about it this way. Uh, if you were to invest in, there's, you've, have you all heard like the classic bed net example? No. Like the okay, so you know there's there's this idea with organizations like well, malaria. Uh, Is this give well right that like if you were to set up, you know, you could you could either like give, I don't know, a hundred dollars, right, to a homeless shelter here in the U.S. Or you could that, eradicate malaria in like some town. Or, yeah. or right, or you could use those hundred dollars to buy five hundred bed nets um, and put them up. Uh, somewhere where malaria is endemic, right? Yeah. And you would save 
I don't know, maybe 50 times. I'm just throwing a number here. But the, the, the point is that you would save an order of magnitude greater in lives abroad yeah. using something like that um, than in the United States, okay. right? So the question that I'm posing yeah. is, do you have a greater responsibility to use that dollar and invest it in the U.S.? Or should you use that dollar abroad? Does it matter yeah. how many lives you save, right? Yeah. Is, is it a question of, well, my dollar will go further abroad, so that's why I'm going to choose to invest abroad? Or do you think that, you know, that, that shouldn't matter. Yeah, I, I think it's you, you're protecting your own once again. It's the same as the family issue. Your biggest concern is protecting yourself, then your family, then your friends, then your community, then your country, and then your world, right? Because I, I, I guarantee you when the aliens come and, like, start shooting at us, the North Koreans and the U.S. are going to be so freaking tired, we're going to share a nuclear weapons program together because there's always a, there's now a new power. So you always protect your own communities going upwards. So, yes, I, I, I think we should, as we're thinking in terms of what we care about most, put the $100 towards the hom- homeless shelter, not the malaria bed nets, even though they'll help more people because, I hate to say it, that's not our problem, right? It's like if you have a family down the street and your own family and, and you have some money but you're a little strapped for cash and the family down the street is, is really you know, uh, doing poorly, you still want to help your daughter, for example, go somewhere. That's your, that, you know, go take a trip, buy food, whatever. That's your predominant concern, not the people down the street because they're closer to you. But let's say they're struggling and then somebody in another town struggling, who are you more likely to help? It's just who you know. It's who you're connected with more. I don't think it matters what the outcome is it matters what the input is what you're actually doing what you're hoping to gain and how strong you are those relationships yeah to me i can like answer your question with a question it's your the question really is do i have a larger obligation to my family member to a stranger that's really what the question is and do you have a larger obligation yeah. to your country going, in the world well but but but, but i was i was gonna say um going to nick's point it's like first of all it's only about impact until because i like sort of the chain that nick sort of set said after that it's only a great chain of being if you have a great great chain of social being it only becomes about impact like how many lives can i save from malaria whatever after i've made sure all my other bases are covered so like people said charity is great but nobody wants and people think charities almost everyone thinks charity is like a moral virtue taking like you know the extra surplus you have and giving it to other people but the key word there surplus while it's nice to feed the family down the street if you can people will look very unfavorably of a mother letting her children starve so she could give money to the other family down the street people yeah, think you're virtuous but you're also stupid i yeah, mean yeah people, people, people <laughs> yeah. think that's basically in a way that's charity that people find morally reprehensible in okay. a way it's like you can't there's something unseemly about okay i have a larger moral obligation to people who i owe nothing to and who i share no social relationship with and the people who should be at the core of my existence right I, so then so then What's the moral case for stamping out poverty traps? And I'll, I'll explain, like, uh, what I mean by this. So there are, you know, you, uh, the, there's this theory of a poverty trap, uh, which is a situation where think of, think of a country, right, that doesn't have industry, right? So there are no productive industries in the country, um, but there also aren't any roads or any public goods in the country, right? And you can only produce within the country, by having roads and by having ports and by having all these public goods, but it's a catch-22 that you can't have the roads without taxing uh, any of this industry, but it doesn't exist, right? So countries fall into these situations for a variety of reasons, but there's this prevailing economic theory that the only way they get out of those situations is through some exogenous change. So, you know, you can think of this This applies uh, to a lot of developing nations. Uh, it's It's talked, uh, Nathan Nunn talks about it in a paper that he wrote in 2007 um, that looks at, you know, how did Africa get into 
poverty traps. Um, and one of you know, it's it's the, there's there's a lot of game theory involved, but the idea is that you know uh, countries can get into these situations where it becomes more profitable um, to be a to basically exhibit rent-seeking behaviors and uh, and and basically rob, and that's something that you know is a product of colonialism, right? Uh, what he studied particularly in that paper is he showed, you know, if, if uh, colonists chose uh, to be extractive uh, and they, they chose to play this game for, like, short-run uh, benefit, then societies tend to get stuck in this place where it becomes very hard to push people away from that rent-seeking behavior. Like, you have to have some huge change, some huge coordinated investment across you know, infrastructure across institutions, uh, uh, in education, investment in education, uh, investment in, uh, in, in health interventions. You have to have all of this together in order to move a society out of a poverty trap. You saw the same thing happen in, in, in what I mean by like an exogenous change. Uh, we saw this happen with Bangladesh. So uh, Bangladesh in the 70s had no uh, garment manufacturing industry at all. And uh, it's a very interesting case, actually. There was a, I think it's called the Daewoo Corporation in South Korea. Uh, they, they wanted to get around these export restrictions to the United States. And so uh, one of the ideas they had was, well, we'll go to a country that isn't exporting, like they, they haven't hit their quotas, and we'll ship our textiles. We'll like teach them how to manufacture. So what they did was they invited uh, a couple of uh, textiles manufacturers from Bangladesh to come to South Korea, learn how the company created their textiles, and then uh, these folks from Bangladesh took that innate knowledge uh, that these textile manufacturers had in South Korea back to Bangladesh, and they started producing textiles, and they gave some cut to Daewoo. Now, what happened was that the entrepreneur who started the company in Bangladesh, after a while he realized, hey, look, I know how to make you know, these textiles really well. I can sell them to the U.S. Um, this benefits me a lot. So I'm going to renege on my agreement uh, with the South Korean company. And so that's what happened. And then what ended up happening in Bangladesh was that a bunch of people from this company, uh, the company in Bangladesh, ended up leaving the entrepreneur and they started their own textile firms. And so you had this explosion in industry that was really only possible because of this exogenous change. So that's like a huge tangent that I just think is interesting. But I think the, the point that I was getting at originally um, is, you know, does the United States or any country have like a, a moral obligation to shake countries out of those poverty traps uh, because they really can't help themselves in a lot of these situations. And in, in many cases, it's the reason why they're in that situation is, uh, is, is because of two, th- I mean, it's, it's because of many different factors depending on what sc- economic school you subscribe to. But, you know, uh, it's because of geography, because of you know, you may have uh, you may live in a region that has bad agriculture that is is uh, subjected to a lot of diseases. It's due to colonialism. So, is there a moral responsibility to push countries out of poverty traps? 
Yes, but that doesn't mean the U.S. needs to be the only person helping them, only country helping them. I you think it should be. A, it doesn't have to be unilateral. Yeah, I, I think it should be. I think in this case, it should be multilaterally across the board. I don't think, but but usually what happens when the U.S. says it should be multilateral is that the U.S. foots 50% of the bill. Um, and it really has to be a joint partnership, right? If we are bringing one nation up and there are 200 and you know plus nations around, then they should all be contributing to help that nation get back on its feet, I, I, I think. But I think it's important, though, just as a, as a quick clarifier for a conversation. Can you guys guess which are, let's say, let's say the top four countries we give the most aid to, most foreign aid to? Israel's like number one. Israel's number three with $3.1 billion. Yes, but yeah, right. but out of that $3.1 billion, that's all military aid. Yeah, my God. Uh, all right, what else? So the most is, Anyone, any other I think questions? from my understanding, the, the what we mainly give is military, food, right? Military aid. It's military. Saudi Arabia? Military aid. I mean, I, oh, oh Saudi, Saudi Arabia's not in the top five. Oh. Uh, they come afterwards. Number one is Iraq. This is 2016, so it may have shifted a little bit, but. I still think it's pretty accurate. Iraq is number one with 5.3 billion. Afghanistan, 5.1 billion. Israel, 3.1. A surprising Egypt with 1.2 billion. And then Jordan with 1.2 billion. All, interestingly enough, countries in the Middle East, which we need very much so for both our security and, and energy purposes. It's almost all weapons. Yeah, and it's almost all weapons. Yeah. And so, as, as evidence, Afghan receives $3.7 billion in security aid, Israel, $3.1 billion, and, and same thing for Jordan and Egypt. So, I think um, we don't have a moral obligation as, as solely the people um, to give this, this food aid and humanitarian aid. I think we need to work with countries to help them bring them up because I don't think we can bring everything to the table. And I think one of America's biggest flaws is that we say, oh, this works for us, so this will work for you. And I think you need to have countries from uh, all around the regions of the world to help this nation specifically rise up. But I do think we need to continue to focus on foreign aid, which is the exact military, which is the exact purpose of foreign aid, which is helping countries uh, build their militaries, become stronger power so we can work with them in the region. Th- I'm glad that you brought up the point about multilateralism, Nick, because it, it's it's something I think we've been tending in this direction. But it's something it, it's I, I want to actually get get to this question. Um, and the, so the reason, but by, by the way, let me say that I'm I'm more sympathetic to arguments, you know, to to saying yes, citizens do have more of a moral obligation to contribute to their own citizens than to citizens of other nations. Or that yes, American governments do have the well. Any um, any national government has more of an obligation to help its own citizens first than the people of any other nations. But the reason that I'm fascinated with the the inherent assumption underlying that, which is as I said, and I'm not being critical of the assumption, just stating it, that you that in the eyes of the policy, you're valuing you know the 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 life of your own citizen your own peer more than the life of another is that i think as we as we continue to globalize and as we continue to face problems where it's not that it's not my problem it's the problem of some other person 200 miles away we need to more and more be able to shift away from that assumption and actually become multilateral where we all understand that it's all of our problem and if we don't contribute then the problem is going to is going to become more severe. So I think just to go, to go back to something that Jason said a, a while ago, uh, you said, Jason, that it's a fact of life that we think and, you know, that we conceive of ourselves as members of groups. I completely agree with that. I think as far as we know, humans must exist in groups. But I think the one thing that can change is the scale of the group. For instance, if you, if you went back and told Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Adams, if you said, yeah, 200 years from now, we are, there's going to be the existence of a national solidarity from sea to, from, to shining sea, California to 
to Washington, D.C. I don't think they would believe you. I don't think they could have conceived of a national solidarity in those terms because back then they thought of themselves first and foremost as Virginians or Pennsylvanians. Instead of Robert E. Lee, you know, right. 60, 70 years later. Yeah. Right, but I think now, predominantly, I don't know if, um, if many Americans, maybe the exception is Texans, conceives <laughs> of the, conceive of, them, of themselves, their identities, as primarily uh, coming from the state and then coming from the nation. I think I consider myself more of more of an American than I do um, than I do a Pennsylvanian. But the point is, I think we need to scale up further. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I disagree with most of what President Trump does. But I disagree. I, I do agree when he says America has an obligation to Pittsburgh, not Paris. The tragic irony is that he made that statement talking about the Paris Accords, and as we know, climate change is is. Uh, a problem that can only be tackled if we do conceive of ourselves as members of a single human race living on the earth rather than as just Americans or just French because then no one's going to solve the problem. But that's a, that, um, that's a problem. So it's like when I talked about um, the idea, it's like, okay, like we need to have this concept of the self or like of the human group and we need to belong to that. Anytime you're having a group, by definition for humans and their and um, how we view the world, there has to be an outgroup. There has to be an other for us to be able to establish our own identity. We only know what we are by knowing what we it's are It's us not. versus them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So we can scale up, but there's a limit to scaling up. And that hard limit is at the human race. We yeah. cannot, it cannot be everybody because if it's everybody, then it's nobody. Yeah. It's so broad as to have no meaning at all, essentially. So then people will, that's why we're at the level that we are now. Where it's like the nation state is the last level that you can get up. Well, we're trying the whole regional thing and Europe is proving that's a crappy idea. When we'll you, talk about that next week. Why yeah. it's a crappy idea? <laughs> why yeah. it's a crappy idea when you have well-defined nation states. We're not just going to all erase our identities because that would be like erasing ourselves yeah. to join this weird, you know, amorphous block for what? For what purpose? You yeah. know, we can't conceive of a higher of a of a higher group than like, you know, our, our in-groups essentially. Well, that's yeah. why I, said, I, 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 I told you I told you this yesterday and Nick kind of alluded to this even though Nick was not uh, in this conversation that we had yesterday. I was but excluded. If I, were, if I were the head of government and I really wanted to enact climate change, I would make up stories about aliens. Because I think that's the only way to get... To well, then get we start fighting the aliens. We yeah, want to fight climate the, change. Well, no, I'm saying make up stories. I'm not saying... About climate change aliens. Boom, no, done. About aliens, <laughs> and that will actually get some solidarity on the planet. I think that's the only yeah. way. Because I, I yeah. do agree with you. You need a them to have enough definition. And I think we talk a lot about tribal politics in this country. We don't talk about tribal geopolitics, which is just this idea of, you know, nations are so against each other. And I think to Jason's point, you know, Europe erasing its identity. It's as if going back to the family, you just, your family became one. And you did everything your dad did and your dad did everything you did and you just became this one unit which everyone you know prizes their individuality Italy prizes their individuality which is why they're being and making such a stink over the current um, EU situation but I think to go off of it, to Samar's point, you mentioned transnational threats, basically. Climate change is a transnational threat, which is why the U.S. is beginning to work with China on some of these threats, right? It's, you know, drug production, drug solicitation, or it's climate change, or it's terrorism. There are a host of issues that we can all get behind and work on. And that's my, my difference, which, back to Jose's original question, when and where should we help people? It's, once again, going back to our national interest. Does working with China, does helping this, let's say this country has some great natural resource that we can extract and build 
world and can save the world, etc. It's in our national interest to do rise up this transnational threat or do something that, that helps us all. So we partake in it. But if you're asking me to support a country in uh, you know somewhere that is in, that is in a poverty trap and that doesn't prove a massive interest, the U.S. can't go all in. It can only you know elicit a, a minor contribution because it has far other bigger tasks and threats to handle. That's the moral consideration. What's more pressing and what's more important for those people that you actually work with and you live with? That's on us team. Yeah, because I, because I mean, you also, you also have to like to think about it. It's like it already takes an incredible amount of effort, as you said, to like maintain social relationships in general, to maintain the things that are already directly important to you. Um, so to be able to have to expend extra energy on people that aren't reciprocating at all, it really has to be limited and discretionary at that point. Or you can't be spending that much money or that that many resources on it if it's not because it's like you are spending very useful time money and energy on things that are bringing you no benefit at the end of the day yeah and i mean even going back to the daewoo case i I brought up south korea didn't intervene as a country right and and they didn't intervene just to help out bangladesh you know it was a south korean firm that intervened because they were trying to get around export restrictions to the united states so there's there's definitely a a selfish element to it so i guess we're wrapping up now yes we we've come over the the time limit. what's what's the status of any time yeah i think we are uh just about out of time all right so going around the room as as the final uh uh, countdown we talked about families and and would you save them over your country and then country over the world what is uh going back to this foreign aid question one transnational threat one cause you would you would uh, like the u.s to uh give money to Quickly, just a quick uh, 10 second, 15 second answer. What's it? Who wants to go first? A good transnational or a good international cause you'd like to. Yeah. And it no. can't be more weapons to the Israelis. It has to be no, something different. I don't think, I don't think I know. <laughs> more weapons. <laughs> that, that was the Middle East. That was the only thing. That's yeah, the Jordanians only, need more anti Only Nick was thinking about yeah. the transnational problem. It's too obvious. I mean, I'll say space exploration. The development mm-hmm. of Africa. Mean, oh, the development of Africa. Okay, there we go. That's easy. So we have two. Yeah, I would go off of that actually and say uh, anti-corruption campaigns in Africa. Uh, you, you no, but I think if that. you actually, I think <laughs> how you, you you can't talk about African like, development uh, without talking about anti-corruption. Of course, that's gonna. Well, what were you gonna say? No, I just think well, maybe not in Africa, but also in South America, since it is on our hemisphere. So you just change the continents. Of- no, I'm saying you. I'm saying off of your Africa point, which is has, I believe, high levels of corruption. Last time I checked, it does. I'm saying you know we would start with the South America is kind of like a training program, like uh, playing Nicaragua, playing Colombia, like, and then hey, take Guatemala, it over to you're our training ground for <laughs> no, no, wanky it's, social. It's policy. not a training ground. It's it's almost like we did with playing Colombia. Is there a drug policy? Any drug policy that works. Columbia doesn't need it now because it's doing rather well. But in, in Latin America, South America, try out programs that could help eliminate government corruption, begin a kind of beta test case, and then maybe take it um, larger. But that, that's where I'd put money to it. I'd be interested in solving that problem. It's a big issue. Okay. Yep. Yep. The development economist in me is very happy you brought that up. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, screw you, Jess. Smart? I I don't know. This is the shit that happens. Smart wants to give African $10 million to himself. Um, well, that wraps up uh, this podcast of, of Time wait, of Meditation. Wait, Smart to say, you can say I'm yeah, 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 yeah. What, what is that? chickened out. It's embarrassing. What, what, what are you thinking? He says climate change. Climate change. Yeah, no, no, don't say climate change. We t- we I think we all agree on climate change. Everyone right? agrees on climate and change. And weapons to the Middle East. I think those are two things we can all get by. Yeah. Just, <laughs> there's not a single issue in the world. Not that I feel that passionate. Wow. Smart the side, passionate about nothing. Should, should be even slightly reduced or enhanced. What's, what's one good thing you see happening in the world? How about AIDS, Smart? Do you care about AIDS? 
<laughs> we're putting the spot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, diseases, that's always something. Diseases, and, I mean, that actually ties directly into development. And it's the and easiest it's one, actually. We have, the, we have the methods to do it. It ties directly yeah. to development. Well, now that Samarth has provided us that fantastic... Money to India. Insight. <laughs> this wraps up an episode of Timely Meditations. Thank you, Samarth, for joining us. Uh, next week, we'll be having another special guest, Andrew Zucker. Uh, we'll pick up on this conversation specifically, I think, about Brexit, the EU, kind of the solidarity, why that's not working, and more specifically, political moderation in the U.S., just after Bedouin Wark announced his uh, candidacy for the presidency today. So uh, tune in next week. We hope to see you then.